Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 15. I'll read. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Today we have the pleasure of Russ, one of our elders, to uh, unpack this passage and show us more of Jesus. So um, can we just give him a warm welcome? Well, thank you for coming. I know that there are some people here for the very first time. And there are some of us uh, who've been here for decades, uh, several decades. I'll let the mathematicians tell you how many that is. But for myself, I'm, I think it's I'm almost entering my sixth decade here. Um, and I just want you to know this is a very special time. There'll be no other time like this in your life. So let's, let's make the most of it. Uh, I want to give my thanks uh, to Albert uh, for chairing and helping to prepare these slides. Joel, thank you for helping us in worship with the music. Uh, the sound crew, uh, the audiovisual folks are very important. Uh, and for the people who prepared uh, this bread and wine that we're going to be taking part in, all of this is necessary for us to, to meet this way. Jesus the man, tried and true. Vibe check, uh, look up at the banner of Scripture. Colossians 1.17. Our family is relatively large and very spread out, globally speaking. Amy and Dave are in New Zealand. Uh, Rachel and Mike live in New Jersey. Uh, Jimmy and Becky are in Hamilton, and... Uh, very recently, uh, Sarah and Steve are sharing our home at 219 Don Lee Drive. In order to keep connected, we've used several 
internet applications with which I'm sure you're quite familiar. Uh, FaceTime, uh, Google Meet, and Zoom. However, our most popular tool is Marco Polo. It's like email, but the messages are actually video clips. People can send at any time. Others can view all the queued up, sometimes over 50, uh, polos that they've missed. No need for people to be online at the same time. We're all in one big group, in-laws included. One common meme which has developed is a vibe check. I think Jimmy invented it. People chime in usually for less than five seconds, which is great for me, showing where they are, what they're doing, and who they're with. And we're all introduced with the, all this introduced with the words vibe check. It's both fun and informative and keeps us up to date with each other. The vibe check is supposed to give a little window into how one is feeling or what one is experiencing. How about uh, you right now? How do you feel when you enter this, this place? Is it a different feeling each week? Are you happy? Are you feeling pretty good about yourself? Or are you a bit down in the dumps due to circumstance, bad choices, or an events that you're trying to work through? When we enter this space, Lots of things are going on. People are chatting. We're looking around to find familiar faces. And of course, the TGC kids, well, they're just being kids. Some of us head downstairs uh, to get coffee or freshen up. Some of us are on our smartphones. Up here, uh, there's usually someone trying to bring order to the chaos and attempting us to get into the right frame of mind for worship. There's a sound of musical instruments with the intent to lift our, lift our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to God. Then, as good Protestants, we have an extended season of reading and listening to God's Word. Sometimes it's a majority of the time. Given our heritage, that makes good sense. We believe at Trinity Grace Church that the Father speaks by means of the Spirit of the Logos, the living and transforming words of God. Today we are considering the events of Jesus the man, who immediately after his baptism in the River Jordan, travels out into the desert, goes solo for six weeks without food. The climax of the journey is an epic engagement with Satan, the evil one, the author of lies. He faces three colossal testings or challenges, and though weakened in his body, wins each battle of the mind and will, emerging as the sinless and peerless champion tried, and true. I hope that our vibe check today 
And every day that we enter this space includes uh, looking up. Like the, like the giant, you know, look up, look way up. And that we're calibrating ourselves wherever we're at with the bold idea that Jesus, the working poor man, the suffering servant, is preeminent. That just simply means if you're talking about mountains, he's Everest. If you're talking about planets, he's Jupiter. There's no comparison. There's no peer. That's what that word means. And he's not just that in this place, but of time and history, but he's that for eternity. I hope we've checked our pride at the door. I hope we do that each and every week we come here to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I hope that you don't think you're going to hear from me three lessons on how to fight temptation and win. I hope you don't think that I am in any way the man or the good guy or the godly husband, parent, pastor, elder. I hope not. Because in reality, I am not. Rather, I'm just like you. This platform, in fact, is an artificial illusion. We are all broken sinners. Easily, very easily, overcome by the world, the flesh, and the devil. I hope we come away today with a better understanding of the greatness of Jesus and the waywardness of our own souls. I hope we come away with a new sense of what it means to follow, learn, and worship Jesus the man, maker of heaven and earth, impeccable servant of God, the only person able to rescue us from the flaming arrows of the great adversary. Amen. Let's look at the text, or as the academics say, uh, check your sources. The story of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Surprisingly, perhaps, Mark gives us less than a Coles Notes version of the events. Two sentences, short and to the point. Of interest, he mentions that the wilderness was indeed wild with the animals that go along with it. By the way, last Thursday morning, I saw a coyote trotting down Donnelly Drive before ducking into a neighbor's backyard. Mark also mentions the angels, God's messengers and helpers, that they gave aid to Jesus. This is a window into how vulnerable Jesus was weak in body, and clearly challenged by Satan in his will, his mind, and his soul. He also makes the point that the Spirit uh, compels or drove Jesus to this place of trial. This idea is too deep for me to comprehend, except to say that the temptations were real, as was the hunger, the isolation, the cold and the dangers that come in that environment 
Jesus, Jesus as a man was not immune to any of the common experiences that we all face. The story as recounted by, Ma uh, by Matthew is virtually identical to the one that we've read from Luke. Both indicate that Jesus was led into the wilderness rather than compelled or driven. Like Mark, Matthew mentions the care and help of the angels after the final temptation. The specific order given of the last two temptations are reversed in Matthew as compared to Luke. So in Matthew, it's, it, it's the stones to bread, Jerusalem, throw yourself down, and the vista from the high mountain of the kingdoms of this world. And as we've just read in Luke, it's the stones, the mountains, and then Jerusalem. I do not find this to be a problem in terms of the accuracy of the Gospels as part of the authoritative Word of God. If anything, the similarities are stunning. Leading scholars to believe that the writers of the Synoptic Gospels used a common source for the bulk of their information. So much for the academics. The first test. Issue distractions or as I heard from a YouTube video this week about the conflict in Gaza, you can't learn history from Instagram. Blaise Pascal, born in France at the beginning of the 16th century, <clears throat> excuse me, is famous for his work in physics, mathematics, and philosophy. His work laid a foundation for probability theory, and he invented machines to do tedious mathematical tasks, uh, now known to us as computers. However, he's probably best known for his loosely collected thoughts put down in a series of writings, the, the Pensées. In these, he covers a multitude of ideas, all of which touch on very practical matters of life. These thoughts, that is the literal translation from the French of pensée, are rooted deep in his Christian faith. Pascal writes powerfully on les divergences, the diversions of life. Just take a listen and see if the things are much different in our age than as compared to his. He writes, I've discovered that all the misfortunes of men arise from one thing only, that they are unable to stay quietly in their own chamber. Again, he writes, hence it comes that men so much love noise and stir. Hence it comes that, that the person, that the prison is so horrible a punishment Hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. And it is, in fact, the greatest, the greatest source of happiness in the condition of kings that men try incessantly to divert them and to procure for them all kinds of pleasures. In our story, we find Jesus alone and isolated far from any of the basic conveniences of life, that is work, friends, and family. He stripped not just from the good things of life, but indeed the essential ones, food and shelter. He's out in the desert, 
you know your geography, it's hot by day and very cold by night. When it's dark, the wild animals come out and seek their prey. Whatever water he had, a scarce commodity in the desert, it had to last him for almost six weeks. Man versus nature. His body, mind, and spirit is all there is. Man versus self. Perhaps he remembers the words of affirmation from his baptism. You are my beloved son. You bring me great joy. Perhaps he spent most of his days in prayer. Perhaps he spent it finding wood to keep him warm at night to keep away potential carnivores. In short, there were no distractions. He faced issues of survival, identity, mission, life, and death. At the end of this time, his body and being in its weakest state, Satan comes and tempts him with the idea of turning stone into bread. The fact that he could indeed perform such a miracle was known by both of them. How ironic that he who provided manna in the wilderness in the wilderness of Sinai to a great number of people, elected not to do so for his own self and his own needs. How ironic that he, being the very bread of life, and would perform such a miracle in due time, elected not to do it. Hungry as he was. So Satan verbalizes the obvious practical solution to his problem. Just do it. You're hungry. You're that powerful to transform inorganic matter into organic matter. Jesus, as is usually the case, answers in a short and straightforward manner by reciting scripture, which of course he learned and memorized as a child. Man does not live by bread alone, and Matthew adds, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he's quoting there from the law, Deuteronomy 8 and 6 in our Bibles. These are the words of God to his people in the wilderness, not to get complacent and to forget him in their comfort and in their prosperity of manna, quails, fire by night, and cloud by day. Don't forget me when you're having a good time. There's nothing wrong with food or drink or shelter. We all need them to survive. There's something terribly wrong, though, with the thought. Maybe you've heard it. He who dies with the most toys wins. There's an idol in every idea of life that consists in the fulfillment of one's personal dreams and aspirations. In the words of Pascal, life without God is at best a giant cul-de-sac. Jesus would later say, what does it benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? One of the things we all do, rich or poor, uh, new immigrant or fifth generation citizen, is shop for food. And what do we see at the checkout counter? 
What kind of magazines and candies are there there for us to look at? And by the way, things haven't changed in 60 years in terms of marketing that part of our food chain. Diversions in what to eat, what to wear, and what celebrity is doing what with whomever. Earlier, I introduced us to a lesser-known smartphone app, but here are a few I'm sure that the majority of us are intimately familiar with, in no particular order. Facebook, YouTube, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Spotify, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Disney, the streaming movie thing goes on. Are these not primarily diversions which keep us from loving God or loving our neighbor by feeding or clothing or finding him or her shelter. I'm speaking from experience, by the way. I have no quick solutions to these addictive habits except to balance my online time with uh, reading, uh, reaching out to people, and disciplining my mind to focus on Christ and his kingdom. I'll let you know when I've mastered this task. Pray with me. Test number two, the power that corrupts. Quoting Shakespeare, all hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king hereafter. Having failed his first contest with Jesus, Satan now has a bigger plan, one with global grandeur. He offers him a gambit of enormous proportion. They are both miraculously transported to a high mountain, a detail added by Matthew. And from there, in a very time-compressed way, Satan offers to Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Rome, Athens, Egypt, Syria, Persia, and beyond. Ultimate power ultimate wealth, ultimate control and influence. All of this, so said Satan, was his to offer and for Jesus merely to accept. There was a catch, however. Jesus would have to bow down and worship him. Note that Jesus does not question whether or not these kingdoms were Satan's to administer. Rather again, as before, he answers by reminding Satan that there's only one God, and he's the only one worthy of such homage. Again, quoting from the law in our Bibles, Deuteronomy 6.13, you, you must worship the Lord God and serve him only. This offer must have had some pull on Jesus, the Son of Man and Son of God. After all, he was the king of the Jews and had a kingdom to establish as the Messiah. Ultimately, he knew one day he was to become king of kings and lord of lords and that every knee would be bowing down to him. He knew that. Though power in and of itself isn't wrong, and though Jesus was a person who had the potential to do very powerful things, he eschewed this offer as being both evil and empty. He knew that bowing down to Satan was the epitome of idolatry, and that the power offered was one which would lead to 
corruption, pain, suffering, and ultimately death. One thing we learned in high school, we, boomers, uh, through poetry and plays, was that with humans, absolute power corrupts absolutely. I recall the poetry of Shelley, who wrote of the ruins of a deserted statue and its inscription of a once and great powerful king. Part of it reads as, as follows. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty and despair. And then the comment, nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretch far away. I'm sure that you're familiar with the works of William Shakespeare and perhaps the play Macbeth, which tells the story of a Scottish general who, after hearing this prophecy from a trio of witches, all hail Macbeth, thou shalt be king thereafter, seeks the crown for himself. And in doing so, first murders the current king, Duncan, which then leads to a whole web of murders. And in the end, both Macbeth and his wife end up in a state of madness, and ultimately, they perish. What drives the world today, if not money, fame, greed, and power? Corporations, empires, heads of state are all driven by people, chiefly men, who are striving for their own agenda and are willing to go to war if needs be to obtain it. This path, we know from history, usually is accompanied by the suffering and death of, at times, millions of ordinary people who are just wanting to live their relatively quiet lives. So the kingdoms of this world are opposed and totally unlike the kingdom of Jesus, which he was to establish in the lives of his followers. He did so by proving himself as the sinless son of man, righteous before both men and God. Finally, he won his subjects by in humility going to the cross, dying for sinners and rising from the dead with great power. If Jesus is indeed the King of Kings, we need not strive for the power and money which the world so readily offers us. Either way, it's going to cost us our lives. With whom do you want to entrust your life? Test number three, the final one, pride and ego the source of all vice, or to quote a famous boxer, I am the greatest of all time. Three strikes and you're out in baseball. Finally, Satan takes Jesus to a very familiar place, the very temple of Jerusalem, specifically high up on one of its towers. This time, another proposition, jump. You're the son of God. Surely your father will take care of you. Moreover, Satan is cunning. He fights scripture with scripture, and he quotes from Psalm 91, the very psalm that was preached right here yet a few months ago. And here's what he quotes. It's in the Bible. 
The Bible says, for he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So, just because you've memorized parts of the Bible doesn't necessarily make you one of the good guys. On a more serious note, uh, this does show that one has to be somewhat careful as, in, as one interprets and especially as one applies Scripture. Jesus' rebuttal to this argument was again to quote Scripture, <clears throat> which, at a, which is at a much higher level and which showed the error of Satan's offer. Jesus said, the Scripture also says, you must not test the Lord your God. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy in our Bibles 6.16. In this final temptation, Satan strikes directly at the center and perhaps the greatest weakness of every human sinful heart, pride and ego. The offer is compelling, at least to those of us who let our flesh get the better of us. Consider Jesus, known to the crowd at this time as a mere carpenter's son, now a public spectacle. Everyone's watching. What's he doing? How did he get up there? Isn't he going to fall and kill himself? Then Jesus jumps. The crowd is aghast, but he lands unharmed. No broken bones, not even a stubbed toe. Finally, Jesus can announce his identity. This is his entrance as the Messiah and King that God has saved him. What an entrance! Unbelievable. The crowds would be won over to following him in a matter of days. But under all that thinking is pride and ego, the lure of applause and approval of other people, popularity, the oohs and the ahs and the wows. To quote the late Muhammad Ali, indeed, a great boxer and a sportsman, I am the greatest of all time. That's the appeal of this offer. Instant fame and a feeling of pride in oneself. However, in reality, God is not mocked. He's not to be tempted or told what to do or when by someone else. I recall the late Ethel Lee, a former girls camp director at, at Minioe, making the following comment. She had many of these pithy statements regarding uh, our prayer that she'd heard for decades. Some of us go around talking to God as if he's a genie in a magical bottle or a utility knife in our back pocket. Unlike many other vices, which are much more out in the open, sexual sin, uh, theft, murder, slander, etc., pride is something that one may think one can hide. Or even worse, that one might think it doesn't even exist anymore. As a Christian, as something that has been dealt with and pretty well dead and gone. Listen to C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, who made the following stinging words regarding human pride. The vice I am talking about is pride or self-conceit, and the virtue opposite to it 
in Christian morals is called humility. You may remember when I was talking about sexual morality, I warned you that the center of Christian morals did not lie there. Well, now we have come to the center. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads every other, vo every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is so deep in our culture, and may I say, in the church, that it seems to be acceptable in the manner, it is what it is. Here are some of the things I rarely hear in our believing communities of Christian faith that at least would show some acknowledgement that humility is our badge rather than ego. I'm listening, and I want to hear more of what you have to say. I am or I was wrong. I'm sorry that my words injured you. I apologize that my actions caused you pain. Will you forgive me? What can I do to make amends? I'm a sinner, even though I've been following Jesus for a long time. In closing, let's remember that Jesus is our man. He's our savior. He's our deliverer and our redeemer. The person he is, his strength of character and sinless nature demonstrates that he's the perfect son of man. When we need help, he's there and our helper. Our natures are weak at the point of resisting sin and temptation. We are as likely to lose some battles as we are to be victorious. In humility, let's remember that, remember that, and continue to worship Jesus, who is a man full of grace and truth, the preeminent one. Thank you.